a lot of our lifestyle behaviors decrease the risk of recurrence, they decrease our incidence of many of our cancers. Those behaviors also are beneficial for managing many of our menopausal symptoms. So eating a healthy diet, avoiding those ultra processed foods, avoiding that kind of sugar spike, all of those things can support women as far as their hormonal health. You have more power over your health than what you've been told. This is the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions Podcast. I'm Maya Acosta, and I'm passionate about finding healthy lifestyle solutions to support optimal human health. If you're willing to go with me, together we can discover how simple lifestyle choices can help improve our quality of life and increase longevity in a big way. Let's get started. Okay, gather around, ladies. This episode is for you. Today's guest will speak with us about menopause, sexual health, breast cancer screenings, and so much more. We are going to learn about women's health across the lifespan. Let's get started. Dr. Michelle Tollefson is an obstetrician gynecologist in Denver, Colorado, and a professor in the Health Professions Department of Metropolitan State University of Denver, where she created and oversees the Lifestyle Medicine Program in the Wellness Coaching and Lifestyle Medicine Pathway. She founded and co-chairs the American College of Lifestyle Medicine's Women's Health Member Interest Group, as well as the Pre-Professional Lifestyle Medicine Education Member Interest Group. She serves as the ACLM Board Secretary and serves on the Education and Membership Committees. She is the Editor-in-Chief of Improving Women's Health across the lifespan, an international speaker, women's health consultant, leads Paving the Path to Wellness groups, and recently co-authored the Paving the Path to Wellness workbook with lead author Dr. Beth Frades and Dr. Amy Commander. She is also a breast cancer survivor and thriver through the power of lifestyle medicine and enjoys spending time in the Colorado outdoors with her husband and three children. Today, she is here to share her story with us and to offer so many tips for us to become self-empowered. And this episode is dedicated to all women. So whether you're a female or a man listening, I would love for you to share this episode with someone that you love, whether it be your mother, your sister, your daughter. I think we're going to learn a lot today about how we can take care of our health, how we can take control. So welcome, Dr. Tollefson. Oh, thank you for the invitation. I'm excited to talk with you today. I'm a fairly new member of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine and also just recently started being a little bit more present in the women's health interest group. And so I've asked in the past, like, how can I contribute to help spread the message about female, just women really taking control of their health? So you're here to share your story. I hope that there will be through this conversation some more confidence about getting regular screenings. It is the beginning of the year. And this is when, at least myself, I try to schedule all my annual checkups this is a good time to talk about breast cancer screening or at least having mammograms. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself and your story? Sure, I'd be happy to do so. So as you mentioned, I'm an obstetrician gynecologist and am also very involved within lifestyle medicine, especially as it relates to women's health. So I can tell you, I have a couple different stories. One is about my journey toward embracing lifestyle medicine, and the other is my breast cancer journey as well. So as far as lifestyle medicine, I grew up eating pretty healthy foods. My dad had a large garden, and my mom cooked a lot of whole food, healthy recipes with ingredients from my dad's garden and other ingredients that were healthy. So I grew up in a family that embraced healthy eating. I also exercised a lot. I got enough sleep and grew up in a healthy environment. 
when I went to undergrad and medical school, continuing that healthy lifestyle became more challenging. In medical school, you may have heard that physicians on average get about 19 hours of nutrition training. And I would say many of us going through medical school, or at least when I went through medical school, sometimes struggle to eat healthfully even during that time. The classes are very intense and there's a lot of time obviously spent studying and doing rotations. And so I ate a lot of food from the cafeteria during that time and didn't really cook my own food during undergraduate or at least not a lot during undergrad as well as medical school. Then, as you mentioned, I went in to be an obstetrician gynecologist. So I did a four-year OB-GYN residency. And during that time, we would sometimes work 24-hour shifts where we were just trying to stay awake and deliver those babies and take care of our patients. And so often I would drink Diet Dr. Pepper to stay awake for for hours and hours on end. I was not a coffee drinker at that time. Now I, I do drink some coffee. And also we ate a lot of food from drug representatives who would bring in meals and they were delicious, but often they weren't the most nutritious. Also in our hospital basement, we had a McDonald's and that was sometimes the only thing that was available in the middle of the night. And so I would go down to McDonald's and join my patients who would be pushing their IV poles in line. I tried to get healthy options such as um, maybe a fruit and yogurt parfait, but I would say from an overall nutrition standpoint, I wasn't as eating as healthy as I would have liked to. So, and also of course, sleep was difficult during that time. We would stay up for long hours, um, highly stressed And then I didn't prioritize exercise. I used to tell people the only time I would run is if I was running to an emergency delivery, but I stopped exercising like I had done back when I danced and played tennis back in high school. So I wasn't super healthy. I didn't learn a lot about healthy lifestyle behaviors as a medical student or as a resident. And I got into private practice. And so during, while I was in residency, I had my daughter, Caitlin, who's now 17. And I thought when I get out of residency, when I'm in private practice, then I'll be able to prioritize my health. But I found that it was challenging even in private practice. I was part of a big, busy practice and often didn't have as much time to talk with patients as I wanted to about their lifestyle behaviors. And so at that time, I was really trying to change my lifestyle to get back to being healthier again and started to really dive into the nutrition literature to look at exercise and to start to incorporate these behaviors. And the more I dug, the more that I explored those healthy lifestyle behaviors, the more literature I found. And so it was exciting to start to see the depth and breadth of literature that we had on healthy lifestyle behaviors. So after I was in private practice for a while, I decided to switch and to leave the big busy practice that I was at to look for something a little bit that had a little bit less stress. And I joined, I entered academia. And so I am a professor at Metropolitan State University of Denver and volunteer at a local nonprofit doing women's health and gynecology. So that allowed me really to spend time in that nutrition literature, learning more about a whole food plant predominant way of eating and to really start exercising and prioritizing sleep and working on stress management and working on my connections. And I felt better than I had ever felt before. Over a decade ago, I met Dr. Edward Phillips, who is one of the leaders of the Harvard Institute of Lifestyle Medicine and became guest faculty for them. I also joined the American College of Lifestyle Medicine over a decade ago when it was very small and also became one of the first physician wellness coaches along with Dr. Beth Frades. And so I really started focusing on lifestyle medicine, learning more, kind of every, doing everything that I could in that area. And I am currently the secretary of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. We have over 7,000 members now. It's grown tremendously. And over this decade, I've really just been able to immerse myself in this field. So it's kind of been my trajectory as far as my lifestyle, healthy lifestyle behaviors. So I'm going to go back to 2019. And I was as healthy as I thought I had ever been. 
life seemed like it was going about as perfectly as it could be. I have three kids. I have a 17 year old daughter. I have a nine and six year old, a nine, six year old boys have a dog, a fabulous husband and live in Colorado. And I went in for my routine screening mammogram. So at age 40 is when I started doing mammograms. And there there are different organizations, different groups that give recommendations. One of them being the American College of OB-GYNs saying maybe when you should start mammograms. And I believe most of the organizations now just recommend that you have a conversation with your physician, with your healthcare provider to determine when it's right for you. I chose to begin at age 40 and to do annual screening, though sometimes people will space it out every couple of years or maybe even delay screening a little. I recommend that uh, your listeners out there, that they speak with their doctors and to really look at the, to weigh the pros and cons of when to begin screening. But I started at age 40, normal mammogram at age 40, normal mammogram at age 41. And then at age 42, a year and a week after my completely normal mammogram, I went in for a screening mammogram and found a two centimeter breast cancer mass invading my chest wall. I don't have a lot of risk factors for breast cancer. I had no symptoms. I could not feel this mass, even though I had been doing breast exams as a gynecologist. So it was invading my chest while I was not able to feel it. I breastfed all three of my kids. I was eating healthy. I was exercising. I did not drink alcohol in excess. I had done all of the right things. And even without a family history, I still got breast cancer. And so when I got, so I saw the mammogram and I knew that it wasn't good. And while I was waiting for that biopsy, I was sitting in that radiology room just waiting. And I thought, why me? Why did I get this? And then after maybe doing that kind of pity party for a few seconds, I thought, why not me? One in eight women in the United States will be diagnosed with breast cancer during their lifetime. And I knew that if I was going to, I guess, make it on the other side of this journey that I needed to embrace lifestyle medicine and conventional medicine to look at all of the evidence and to move forward with whatever I could to be as healthy as possible. So I went through 16 rounds of chemotherapy, lost my hair, it's back. I had a bilateral mastectomy and my ovaries removed and I've had five reconstructive surgeries. So I've been through a lot, but I feel really good. I embraced lifestyle medicine during my active treatment, used all the conventional treatment as well. And now I'm doing everything I can to advocate for for making sure women get their screening mammograms to make sure that they embrace healthy lifestyle behaviors that can decrease the risk of getting breast cancer, though that we can't eliminate it altogether. I wish we could, but we can decrease that risk. And then also to advocate for healthy lifestyle behaviors for those of us who are breast cancer survivors. So that's kind of my, those two main parts of my story. Yes, thank you for sharing that. And you named those things that are considered risk factors. And I will say that I was not aware that lifestyle whether we're drinking or not exercising or we're overweight. And I'd love for you to touch on those risk factors again to explain a little bit more for our listeners. But I was not aware that they could actually contribute to us developing disease in general and much less put us at risk for breast cancer. So could you kind of just explain a little bit more about that? And then we can talk about screening. So as far as lifestyle behaviors and how they, how they can work with us to, to hopefully decrease our risk of a breast cancer diagnosis, though, once again, do that screening, you can't eliminate it altogether, but eating a healthy diet. And so what we recommend for heart health and brain health and overall health is also beneficial for decreasing the risk of breast cancer. So 
eating a lot of those whole foods. So eating fruits and vegetables and whole grains and nuts and beans and seeds and legumes, a lot of those whole foods that are minimally processed or unprocessed. So a lot of things that look like they did when they were grown. I think it's Michael Polin who says, eat things that come from a plant or come from the ground, not things that were made in a plant. So trying to eat a lot of our plant-based foods, right? And then limiting our intake of ultra-processed foods. So limiting our candy and chips and all those other things that can often contribute to excessive weight. Postmenopausal breast cancer, the risk goes up with increasing weight with obesity. And so we want people to be at a healthy weight that decreases the risk as well in, for postmenopausal breast cancer. So eating that healthy diet, limiting or avoiding ultra processed foods, red meat, limiting or avoiding hopefully processed meat is important as well. For women, breastfeeding is beneficial. So for those of you who are pregnant or who are going to have a baby, if you're able to breastfeed, that that decreases your risk as well. Also engaging in regular physical activity is beneficial. So if you can exercise, the recommendation is about 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise for women spread throughout the week. And so, you know, if you can do 20 to 30 minutes of physical activity a day, that's beneficial as well. So those are some of the key behaviors. And I would recommend anybody who wants to know more about that to visit the American Institute for Cancer Research, the AICR, to visit their website. They are an amazing group that looks at a lot of literature. There's a lot of literature out there on breast cancer, but they look at the research and then put forth recommendations for what the literature really shows as far as lifestyle behaviors and how it impacts risk for breast cancer and other cancers. And then also alcohol. Alcohol use is associated in women is associated with an increased risk of breast cancer. And so I recommend limiting alcohol intake and for limiting or avoiding if somebody does not already drink, I don't recommend that they start. So limiting or avoiding alcohol intake because that's been shown to have to be associated with an increased risk of breast cancer too. And so everyone really needs to know their own lifestyle, what they're okay with changing. But the closer that we can move to eating a, a high quality diet that just incorporates a lot of those whole and minimally processed plant predominant foods can be associated with a Mediterranean style of eating to a, a plant forward Mediterranean style of eating is really beneficial. We know that, that plants contain a lot of antioxidants. If we think about the colors in our foods that we eat, those dark colors. So those dark green leafy vegetables, those blueberries, those really rich pigments help our antioxidants that help our bodies to stay healthy and strong to hopefully decrease our risk of getting cancer, heart disease, dementia, all of those different things. And so just trying to use as many of those as possible is beneficial. Spice herbs, just all of those healthy foods. What are the main risk factors for men? Are they basically the same? Obviously, you just touched on the fact that being overweight is a huge factor. Is it a, a hormonal issue at that point with men? So being an ob I definitely know a lot more about women's healthcare than men. So I don't want to jump too much outside of my area of expertise, but we know that the majority of breast cancers are estrogen receptor positive. And so our fat cell, having additional fat cells leads to higher levels of estrogen. And so we know that the extra estrogen, those higher levels of estrogen is associated with an increased risk of breast cancer for women who have gone through menopause. The average age of menopause is about 51. So I believe that that plays a role in male breast cancer, though I'm not I'm not an expert in that area. Also, a family history does play a role in breast cancer risk. However, there are many people, I believe it's even more common than not for people to not have a strong family history of breast cancer. And so I think it's often easy for us to say, oh, whether male or female, I don't have a family history of breast cancer. My risk may not be that high, but really it's important to know that everyone is at risk regardless of lifestyle behaviors and to know it's good to know your family's history, to know your health history. And of course, if you do have a family history to talk 
with your healthcare provider because it often screening is started earlier then. So for example, my daughter will start screening at a younger age than I did. So there are some differences in recommendations. Also, most people when they're diagnosed with breast cancer are offered an opportunity to see a genetic counselor to decide if they want genetic testing done. I did get that done. So I found out I was not BRCA positive. So I, we didn't find that, that genetic link, but it still is important to know your family history, but know that there's that risk regardless of lifestyle behaviors. Can we talk about why there's such a fear and what are the risks when we decide to avoid screening? It's scary. So being a gynecologist, I have done oh, countless breast exams and talked with many women about getting a mammogram or getting screening. So as a gynecologist, we typically do the clinical breast exam when a woman is in for her annual exam. Or of course, if there's, like you mentioned, if there's any woman notices any changes in her breast, any lumps or bumps or nipple discharge or any abnormal skin puckering, anything like that, we encourage her to see her healthcare provider right away. And then they can order the appropriate test. Sometimes it might be looking at that, the fluid that comes out of the nipple, if they're having abnormal nipple discharge or ordering an ultrasound. Sometimes an ultrasound is more appropriate as the initial diagnostic step. And other times it is a mammogram. So there are what are called screening tests and there are what are called diagnostic tests. But both of those are important. And so let's go back to the woman who's just getting her routine clinical breast exam. And even if everything feels completely normal, there's only so much that my fingers can pick up. Sometimes like the cancer that I had, it can be so deep or so small that it's not able to be picked up by a breast self-exam, by a patient such as yourself or by a clinician. And so that's why we believe it's really important to get those mammograms. Once again, there's different guidelines and different recommendations for when people may want to start screening, some as early as 40 if somebody has a normal risk and some decide to delay some every year and some space those out further. But it really is important for a woman to meet with her physician to have that discussion about her risks and about her individual risks. So going back through her history, talking about family history, talking about lifestyle behaviors, and then deciding what's right for her. Because you're right, if we do those screening tests, sometimes we are going to end up with what we call false positives, where we see something that makes us very concerned and we need to do other tests to ensure that that or to look to find out if that is cancer or not, or if it's something we need to be very worried about, but that can cause a lot of anxiety. And for some women, they prefer to decrease the frequency of their mammograms, knowing that that risk of finding something that may not be a true cancer, that they decide that they want to space those out differently. And so it really is an individual, an individual conversation and decision that each woman needs to make. I decided I wanted to do them more frequently, but you're right. There's fear with mammograms. Some people avoid mammograms altogether just because they're afraid. I always try to encourage women to go get their mammograms. Most people don't find them very painful. I mean, it's not a comfortable thing, most women would say, but it's brief. We have different types of mammograms now, 3D imaging and all different things. It's just a few minutes. And if we catch a breast cancer early, hopefully it can be caught very early where we can sometimes or hopefully avoid a mastectomy like I needed to have or avoid chemotherapy. We know so much about treating breast cancer that we didn't before. And if we can catch it early, hopefully we need less aggressive treatment and then increase the chances of prolonged survival because I want myself and all breast cancer survivors to live long, healthy lives. Also that fear, sometimes people find a lump and they're scared to go in and talk to their healthcare provider, but I tell them, reach out and make that call. Their primary care physician to their OB-GYN to reach out and make that call because we can schedule that imaging so they know what they're dealing with. It may be like you were, it's a benign cyst. Many women have fibrosis changes in their breasts where they have lumps and bumps and that's their normal. But if a woman notices a change or if their healthcare provider notices a bump or notices something abnormal, or if on a screening mammogram, 
we find something abnormal, we want to make sure that we get it appropriately looked at so that we can find out if it's something that should be treated or not. And then remember too, you always, as a patient, you always have the right to get that information. There's some women who get breast cancer who decide not to meet with a genetic counselor, or there's women who find out information and decide there are different routes. Sometimes it might be a mastectomy versus a lumpectomy, maybe different choices or chemotherapy versus no chemotherapy. But really, if you don't have that information, you can't make an educated decision. And so I encourage women not to stay there in fear, to really reach out to a healthcare provider who can go through the risks and go through their family history, go through their individual history, and then make a decision. And then also one thing that I want to mention as well, you were talking about that kind of, and like what I did too, like, what did I do wrong? What did I do? Is there some reason for this? And our brain, I think we want to know, we want to make sense of this when we get a diagnosis such as this. And I think one of the things that's really important is for people who have a diagnosis of breast cancer or any other condition is to try to avoid, Dr. Beth Frady says, to avoid shame, blame, and guilt, to try to you know, that, avoid that should have, would have, could have, but to try to take away that guilt. It doesn't help us make positive behavior change, but really to figure out where we're at now, where we can go, what can we do moving forward, and to look at kind of moving that needle on the spectrum. We don't need to completely change our diet 180 degrees, but how can we start moving in that direction? You know, Maybe you're not doing any exercise, you're not ready to run a marathon. I'm not a marathon runner either, but how can we incorporate more physical activity in our life. And so how can we kind of move in that direction, trying to lay aside that shame, blame, and guilt? None of us are perfect. And often we don't know why. We don't know why things happen. The human body is incredibly complex and we don't fully understand it. So we do the best that we can. We try to reach out and get the tests that we need. Talk with your healthcare provider, talk to others who are supportive in your life and reach out if you need help. Now, you've said that you had conventional treatments. So you combine your treatment with conventional methods as well as lysol medicine, which you already had those tools you had in your tool belt. And you got ahead of this. You basically took control. So you knew you were going to have your chemotherapy treatments. So you went ahead and shaved your hair ahead of time. You started exercising and you just did so much. You really empowered yourself without being at the mercy of this diagnosis. What happened next after you had your treatments? Sure, sure, sure. So yes, when I got my diagnosis, even though I was already eating healthy, even though I was already exercising, I decided that I wanted to really know, I wanted to, as a scientist, I wanted to dive into the literature even further and learn more about what I could do to support myself during that treatment. And so I was fortunate enough that the University of Colorado has a cancer center where they have physical therapists there who have exercise programs. So I was able to actually exercise under medical supervision under the physical direction of the physical therapist who helped me put together a personalized or individualized exercise plan. So sometimes I was doing very, very minimal physical activity, but I was still incorporating physical activity, which has been shown um, with at least some types of cancer and treatment regimens to decrease chemotherapy related fatigue. So I did do that under the guidance of my healthcare professionals. I met with the dietitians there who were able to go over what I was eating and to help me optimize my diet for knowing that I was going to go through chemotherapy. I met with a counselor. I think anyone who gets a life-changing diagnosis such as this, it's of course traumatic. It's life-changing. It's that call that none of us ever wants to get. And so bringing in that support to help us with managing that stress. For me, it was really difficult to sleep initially. And so I was able to get, you know, to talk to some of the counselors about that who had worked with others in the oncology program. And then as I went through treatment, active treatment with chemotherapy, I did modify my diet in some ways that were very aligned with the science, but I just kept following the science. Lifestyle medicine isn't an, it's not an either or, it's not a, you follow this way of being or conventional medicine. Lifestyle medicine is just about 
embracing or about really emphasizing the importance of healthy lifestyle behaviors to prevent, treat, and sometimes reverse chronic disease. And so if I would have just used those healthy lifestyle behaviors instead of conventional medicine, I'm not sure if I would be here. And so for me, that chemotherapy, that surgery, there were different surgical options. And I chose do mastectomy, which is not the right choice for everyone. But after talking with my oncologist and I got a couple, I recommend getting uh, second opinions if you're having any questions. So I talked with multiple surgeons and made that decision. And then after I was done with treatment too, I went back to the dietitians and said, can you help me once again? Can you look at my diet and let me know what your thoughts are for optimizing this? I followed the, the information in the American Institute for Cancer Research. I've continued to exercise. So those are things that I can do for overall health, but especially now going through an early menopause with my type of breast cancer, I went through menopause when I started chemotherapy and then I had my ovaries removed for some other different medical reasons that go along with my type of cancer. But with that as well, those are different healthy lifestyle behaviors that help any woman in menopause that are beneficial to decrease my chances of a breast cancer recurrence and just make me feel better. So I actually feel now about as good as I've ever felt before too. I do have some neuropathy from the chemotherapy and I sometimes get tired more easily than I used to. However, I feel really good. And I attribute a lot of that to my healthy lifestyle behaviors. And I continue to get my regular checkups too, so that if it happens to ever recur, that I'm ready to get it treated again as soon as possible. Because of your treatments, you were kicked into menopause early. How are you minimizing your hot flashes if you're experiencing any at all? Yes, yes, yes. So I was not planning on entering menopause in my early 40s. The average age of menopause in the United States is about 51, but it does happen across a spectrum. So I have a whole new appreciation for hot flashes. I might start dripping sweat while we're talking here. And I'm trying to also normalize that as well. Hot flashes, menopause, it's part of our journey as women. If we live long enough, hopefully we live long enough to go through menopause, right? It's part of that journey. It's not something to be, I think, to be frightened endeavor or something to, to try to avoid. It's part of that normal life progression. So I did, I entered menopause abruptly and have the symptoms that come with it. A lot of our lifestyle behaviors that also decrease the risk of recurrence, that decrease our incidence of many of our cancers, decrease our risk of cardiovascular disease and dementia. Those behaviors also are beneficial for managing many of our menopausal symptoms. And so eating a healthy diet, avoiding those ultra processed foods, avoiding that kind of sugar spike, all of those things can support women as far as their hormonal health. Also getting an adequate exercise. For some women, their hot flashes are triggered by stress, are triggered by caffeine, are triggered by spicy foods. Not everyone, but looking for those triggers can be beneficial as well. There's some research out there that shows that soy foods or soy products are beneficial, soy milk as well. So food or beverages are beneficial for women with hot flashes. And some people do not find benefit with that. I do eat or drink soy products every day. For a while, we didn't know if soy products were dangerous potentially for breast cancer survivors, but we found that they are not dangerous, at least for most women who are breast cancer survivors or the general public to be able to eat soy products, at least a couple servings a day, not going eating tons and tons. Also, I'm not a proponent of the soy isolates or the, or the supplements. I recommend that, that we get our nutrients and everything through whole foods or minimally processed food. So I eat tofu. I drink soy milk. But I think that's helped me as well with hot flashes. Once again, the literature is kind of mixed there. You know, does it help? It helps some women. It doesn't help other women. That might be because of some of the different gut bacteria or our microbiome and how they work with what we take in. So there's still more research that needs to come. But I would say trying to incorporate more whole foods, more eat more plants, eating a lot of fiber. So fiber comes from plants, right? Fruits and vegetables and whole grains and nuts and legumes and seeds, all of those different things. But if somebody is not eating a lot of fiber, I tell them start low and go slow. You don't want to go from eating hardly any fiber to eating a lot or you can end up with some GI problems. So I try to pay attention as well as to what may either 
trigger or bring on a hot flash. I remember hearing another individual say that she noticed that if she drank alcohol, she would be more likely to experience hot flashes. And as a result, she backed off of that. I noticed that if I have processed like vegan processed foods, I tend to start or sometimes like sugar in my coffee, I start to feel hot and it's my body telling me stop <laughs> stop eating that <laughs> yeah. also i'm wondering if emotions play a role oh um, yes anger for example most definitely so stress i've noticed too like if for example you're being very kind with your questions to me and i feel very comfortable with you but if i were very stressed right now i would have an increased chance of having a hot flush i know that that's probably one of my biggest triggers is if i get very anxious or very worried for me that that's a large trigger for me with my hot flashes so yeah so anger any of those that are going to make our heart beat faster we know with hot flashes that during with women who go through menopause or that perimenopausal time period we have what's called a thermoregulatory zone so where our bodies are happy within kind of this like normal zone, like within these temperatures, the body does well. But when a woman goes through perimenopause or menopause, that band kind of shrinks. And so we can go out of that more quickly. And that's when we get that the dilation of blood vessels that feeling real hot and then cooling as well. But being aware of those triggers, trying to avoid trying to dress in layers, simple as these things sounds, I rarely wear long sleeve clothes anymore, except I usually dress in layers and I can put them on, take them off having a fan. It seems a little bit like having a one of those handheld fans in your purse or some that you can even that are like battery operated fans, trying to be aware of triggers and trying to avoid those if possible. And then also, I think it's important for us as women who are perimenopausal or have gone through menopause to normalize this process, that it is a normal part that we shouldn't have to hide it. I may feel more comfortable taking a step away. So if I'm in a meeting and I have a hot flash, I feel comfortable either moving forward just with what I'm doing. If I don't want to acknowledge it to everyone, that's all right. Some people may want to acknowledge it and then move forward. And some people may want to take a break. All of those things are fine. But I think that normalizing that this is a normal part of being a woman is really important. And I like what you mentioned about it being kind of like a science or being aware of it. Because I think too, when we have a hot flush, we can almost think of it as like something that encourages us to take an empowerment moment or to take to pause and to be mindful of what do I need? Is there something that I need? So for example, if I'm angry or if I'm stressed, do I need to take some deep breaths in order to calm myself? Or if I've eaten some food that maybe has triggered it so that I can be mindful next time to possibly avoid it. And then also for women being at a healthy weight helps with hot flashes and night sweats as well. So trying to be at a healthy weight is beneficial too. So, and a lot of those things though, the hot flashes and night sweats, but there's also so many other symptoms of menopause that often aren't discussed and they don't necessarily. So menopause is officially it's defined as not having a period. So the cessation of menses or menstruation for one year, but many women will experience symptoms of perimenopausal. So hot flashes and night sweats or mood changes, or maybe some brain fog, or there are so many different symptoms that go along with that perimenopausal transition. And so often I find that women say when they come in to see me or when I talk to them, they say, I thought I was the only one. I thought I was the only one who was experiencing these like mood changes or what's going on or was feeling this way. And so I think that that's important as well for us as women to talk to our healthcare providers, to talk to our OB-GYNs, our primary care physicians, to talk to other women who have gone through this journey before. There's that wisdom that comes from age. I know often vaginal dryness is a topic that is not often discussed where women often a few years after they've gone through menopause come in and they say, I thought it, once again, I didn't realize that it was so common. I'm struggling with vaginal dryness or with discomfort with intercourse, with vaginal intercourse, with dryness or with dyspareunia or pain with intercourse or decreased libido. That's a common decrease sex drive. That's common as well. And we see it in women. I think a lot of times people think, well, I have these symptoms. And so 
it's just once again, okay, it's just menopause that I just need to suffer through it. Or, or maybe I have urinary incontinence or something like that. And what I encourage women to do is not be afraid to come forth and to share your symptoms, share them with your healthcare provider, because often we have possible treatments and some maybe medication, but once again, you never have to take the medication. There are other options as well. So there's lifestyle behaviors. There are sometimes maybe medications that can be used or not used, prescription, non-prescription. There are a variety of different things, but if you never come in and talk about what's bothering you, then you never will know, I guess, how you can be helped. So I'd love to touch on some other topics as well that you've covered in your most recent book, The Improving Women's Health Across the Lifespan. Who is this book written for? And I know that you also contributed in several of the chapters. You touch on menstrual health. You talk about sexual health. I mean, there's just so much more, but who can benefit from reading this book? Sure. And I can show you the book, Improving Women's Health Across the Lifespan. And I can't take credit for it on my own. My co-editors were Dr. Nancy Erickson and also Dr. Neha Pathak. So they are my two co-editors who helped with this large book that's packed full of information, as well as 57 co-authors who helped to author these chapters. So a wide range of women's health experts across the women's lifespan, across various health conditions, everything from women in sleep or women in menstrual cramps, PCOS, brain health, breast health, all those different topics, pregnancy, all of them are covered. So it is written, its primary audience are healthcare professionals. So I would say physicians and nurses and physical therapists and people who care for female patients. That's the primary audience. However, of course, it's able to be read by anyone. My hope is that we get it out to many of the, the people who are training and training to become women's healthcare providers. So future OB-GYNs, future physicians, future nurses, future PTs and OTs and pharmacists, all of them. That's my hope. Also, those of us who are already out in practice, I'm hoping that some people will get that book and read it as well but it's also able to be read by others. It's very research intensive, so it's very research dense. So if you do happen to get a copy of it and you're reading it, you're going to find citations for study after study after study, because hopefully our intent was for everything that's in there to be based on research. And so it focuses primarily on healthy lifestyle behavior. So for example, if we talk about sexual health, which is one of my favorite topics and also a chapter that I um, contributed to, we're going to talk about how nutrition and physical activity and stress and sleep and substance use or avoidance and interpersonal relationships, how all of those impact sexual health. So not to say that if somebody is having an issue with sexual health that needs medication or surgical management, we're not saying that that's not appropriate. It's just that this book really focuses on those healthy lifestyle behaviors because those are areas that just aren't typically covered in such depth in our training. So I always believe that physicians choose this field because they're passionate about helping people and they're doing the best that they can. And perhaps like many, even including my husband, lack this information in his own training. So I appreciate that there's information like what you have put together in this book to help educate individuals, physicians that are going or healthcare providers that are supporting women and their health. So I appreciate that so much. You talk about sexual health. You say you're very passionate. Do you want to Tell us anything about your field in terms of sexual health. Sure, I'd be happy to. So sexual health for women, for anyone really is part of overall health and well-being. And it is a taboo subject. It's a subject that often, even often healthcare practitioners or providers feel uncomfortable talking about. So, so it's important if you're a patient, I guess, with a concern, trying to find a healthcare practitioner who's comfortable having those discussions. But sexual health is, it's an important part of overall health. And too many people struggle with problems 
often feeling like they're the only one. So once again, a common issue that we see is decreased libido or decreased sex drive or in postmenopausal women, vaginal dryness. And we can have vaginal dryness for other reasons as well, but it often goes along with genitourinary syndrome of menopause, which is some changes in the tissue that we see in the vagina, the labia, the labia minora, majora, the tissue around the urethra, all of that tissue. So it's common. Many women do have issues or concerns about their overall sexual health, but often don't know where to go with those or don't know how to get help. And there can be a variety of different, a variety of different causes, right? We are such complex human beings and our sexual, intimate sexual relationships are varied as, as well as the problems that we have. I think one of the things that is exciting to talk about from a lifestyle standpoint, when we talk about sexual health is the importance of taking care of our, of our vascular health throughout our body, whether it's for, for um, dementia prevention um, or decreasing risk of dementia with, um, with the, the, um, brain health, or whether it's for um, decreasing the risk of cardiovascular disease by working on our on the vessels around our heart, or the vessels in our pelvis. So in the female pelvis, we want those vessels to be healthy as well. And that if we want to have um, healthy cells lining the lining the um, our pelvic vessels, we need to take care of them with um, healthy food, with what we eat. We don't want atherosclerosis. We don't want um, fatty plaque um, buildup in our coronary arteries. Of course, that can lead to a heart attack. We don't want it. It, um, in our brain. Um, we don't want to increase the risk of, of stroke, um, but we also don't want that that buildup in the female pelvis because that can lead to uh, problems with, with vaginal lubrication for women. So if those vessels aren't, if those vessels aren't as healthy, they're not able to, to, to dilate as easily. They're not able to, to let women have that normal vaginal lubrication. Also, sometimes vaginal or genital arousal can be decreased in women who have where the pelvic vessels aren't as healthy. So eating whole food, you know, food is medicine, eating a whole food plant predominant diet, a Mediterranean style diet. Those have some great research as far as working on female pelvic health. And then also we know doing kegels or doing those, you may have heard of those pelvic kegels or pelvic floor muscle exercises where we tighten and release those muscles that if you imagine that you're urinating, that you would contract in order to stop urination. And we don't want women to do that because actually if you do that, really it can increase your risk of urinary tract infections and some other problems. But if you imagine like tightening those muscles and then relaxing relaxing those, tightening and relaxing those, those can strengthen those muscles. And that's been shown to help enhance sexual health for many women, especially as those muscles weaken often as we age. We know that tobacco use is bad for vascular health, so that can harm women's sexual health as well. Other types of exercise, some yoga, those can be beneficial for women's sexual health. Also, distraction is very damaging for women's sexual health, things that don't allow us to be as mindful and present. If you can imagine in an intimate sexual encounter, it's important to be able to be mindful, to not be distracted. Otherwise, parts of our brain get activated that don't allow women to be fully present, to be mindful and to be able to possibly have an orgasm. And so being able to be more mindful, being able to be more relaxed, there's some different things that we can practice, such as progressive muscle relaxation, some deep breathing, some different things that can help help us with that as well. And then I always tell women, it's not all about lifestyle behavior. So whatever you can do to lead a healthy lifestyle, right? The eating healthy foods and trying to help have healthy pelvic vasculature and exercise and stress management and all of those and sleep, all of those things can be beneficial for sexual health. However, there are problems that go beyond what we can do with lifestyle as well. So obviously in an intimate sexual relationship, in any intimate relationship, you can have problems that are between that partnership. And so addressing those with a sex therapist, with marital counselor, with being able to address those, or especially if somebody has a history of trauma or abuse, those are things that can have a significant impact as well that deserve appropriate attention. 
And then there are certain conditions that um, like such as endometriosis, if somebody's having painful intercourse and it's not due to vaginal dryness, it can be due to endometriosis, which then needs to be treated in a different manner as well by a gynecologist. So all different ways. Also with genital urinary syndrome of menopause or vaginal dryness, it's not always caused by problems with that female pelvic vasculature. It can also be to going through menopause and having less estrogen. When we go through menopause, our ovaries are not releasing an egg every month. Our estrogen levels go down. And so our tissues, that our tissues change when we go through menopause, especially the tissues in the vagina, the tissues in the labia majora, the tissues in the genital area. And so some women benefit from having vaginal estrogen. It's safe for many women. Not also, that's why it's important to discuss for some benefits for some people with hormone receptor positive cancers. They may decide that the risk outweighs the benefit for even vaginal hormone replacement therapy. But vaginal estrogen can be used in order to change those tissues in order to decrease, to address the general urinary syndrome of menopause, to decrease vaginal dryness. I know many women are hesitant to use hormone replacement therapy, and there are risks and benefits that each woman needs to needs to consider and best done in conjunction with her physician, with her gynecologist, with her primary care provider, somebody who's well-versed on the risks and benefits of patients. Using hormones that are delivered systemically, that are, are kind of seen by all of the cells in our body is different and has a different risk-benefit ratio than having hormones that are delivered to right to uh, the vaginal tissue. So if somebody is not wanting hormone replacement therapy for hot flashes and night sweats, which is, an, I would say, an appropriate therapy for for some women, once again, weighing risks and benefits, what do they want to do? It's appropriate for some women. And there's different ways we can deliver that address different types of risks as well. But I feel like there's too many women who don't know about vaginal estrogen and it can be in a cream. It can be done like in a tablet and there's some different delivery methods as well. There's also vaginal moisturizers and vaginal lubricants, which I find that a lot of women don't know about. And vaginal moisturizers, it can be something such as coconut oil, or there are other vaginal moisturizers that are on the market that can be used by women who are experiencing vaginal dryness. And they can use that several times a week. That can be beneficial as well. And then also vaginal lubricants are used in order to decrease uh, vaginal dryness or to decrease discomfort or to make vaginal intercourse more comfortable and pleasurable for some women. So all different things that we often don't talk about, but that are, are very important. And I would encourage you, if you don't have a gynecologist who's a physician who's comfortable discussing or primary care providers who's comfortable discussing this with you, then to reach out and find somebody who is. Just like you mentioned, I think physicians are doing the best job that they can. If I think of all the information, I don't stay up to date on the latest surgeries. I know about them, but I'm not up to date on exactly how to do the latest surgeries because I don't do surgery anymore. However, if I were a gynecologist who was still taking people to the operating room regularly, I would want to be up to date on all of those surgeries. And so I feel fortunate I'm able to use my brain to stay up to date on those lifestyle behaviors that some people aren't able to do. And so I think finding the people who have the expertise that you need, being able to reach out, get second opinions, and find those healthcare providers who can really support your overall well-being, whether it's sexual well-being, whether that's breast health or, or whatever area you need support in. That's an excellent point is to remind us that we actually have a choice. So if we're not comfortable with the physician that we're currently seeing, we have choices. <laughs> oh, by the way, so there is a directory. So if people are interested in finding a physician who has this background in lifestyle medicine, where would they go? Sure, sure. So the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, ACLM, that's the organization where I'm the secretary of that professional organization. About half of the members are physicians. The other half of the members are nurses and PTs and OTs and pharmacists and dentists and people from healthcare management and public health and people from the community or organizations or health systems too that are wanting to advance lifestyle as medicine. But there is a directory of healthcare providers that can be accessed through the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. So that's a great resource for healthcare providers who want to get more involved 
involved in the lifestyle medicine movement, I would say, please join us, check us out, check out the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. We have a lot of resources. We have some resources that are open to the general public that are, there's handout on sexual health and lifestyle medicine that I was part of a team that created. I can't take all the credit for it by any means, but there are some resources that are patient facing that anyone can access. There are others that are member benefits, but it really is a professional organization that is dedicated to helping healthcare practitioners learn more about lifestyle medicine so that they can provide that to their patients. And then also just helping to build the infrastructure. It can't even just be healthcare practitioners alone. It can't be doctors alone. We need the whole healthcare team, but we need more than the healthcare team. We need everybody working together, such as yourself to distribute this information. Myself, if I'm here in my, in my office alone, I'm not sharing this information. So we need every member of the team to come together, to work together. And that's where I believe all of us have gifts and strengths. We all have talents. And so if you are excited about healthy lifestyles, if you're excited about lifestyle as medicine, join us. Find those of us. Um, we often, often people who join say that they feel like they've found their family or they found others who are excited about it too. And they're excited about healthy behavior change. They're excited about learning the science of behavior change because behavior change is hard. I am not perfect at anything. I'm not perfect at healthy lifestyles. I struggle with certain things and I just keep trying, but that healthy lifestyle behaviors, wellness, coaching, behavior change, we need everybody working together. So feel free to check out the American College of Lifestyle Medicine if you want to learn more. There's great staff as well who can help you learn more about it. And then also the Women's Health Interest Group has kind of like four categories that individuals can join or subcommittees. So you talk about pregnancy, you talk about menopause. Do you want to tell us just a little bit more about who can join if they're interested in joining and supporting the organization? So we have different categories of membership. So we have physician membership, we have healthcare practitioners or professionals. We have a variety of different categories of membership and where people can join. And you don't have to be a healthcare practitioner to join. We have students who join. We have people from other healthcare systems from all different areas who are joining us. And if you're an American College of Lifestyle Medicine member, you're able to join any of our interest groups. We have a variety of different interest groups. And one of those, of of course, I'm biased since I helped co-found it, but the Women's Health Member Interest Group is one of our groups. Even though I was the co-founder, I helped to turn over the reins, but still stay very active to Dr. John McHugh and Dr. Cindy Geyer, an internal medicine doctor, Dr. Geyer. And Dr. McHugh is an OB-GYN out of California, two amazing people who now lead that member interest group forward. We meet about four times a year on Zoom or in an online format. We're hopeful we'll be able to meet in person for a conference again, hopefully November of 2022, fingers crossed, depending on what happens with the pandemic. But we do, we have four subcommittees within that member interest group. One is a breast cancer focus subcommittee. One is on reproductive health. So painful periods and PMS and um, all the different issues that impact reproductive age women. The other one, and there's menopause, which is an area, of course, that I'm more interested in than even before, even though I was trained and I have a, a personal interest in it now as well. And then we have the pregnancy, the pre-pregnancy, pregnancy, a postpartum subcommittee as well that's focused on advancing some initiatives there. So we have some members. I think we have over 200 members now and probably even more. I haven't checked numbers recently, but some people just join for those quarterly meetings. They join and, and like to hear the dialogue that's going on. Other people like to get really involved in those subcommittees. They want to help with education. They want to help with various initiatives. And so it really is up to each person what member groups they join. And if they do join, how involved they want to be. You founded this interest group and you've done so much to contribute and raise awareness about how women can learn more about these areas, especially sexual health. I really appreciate that you talked about all these topics about vaginal dryness and the things that we don't know. Actually, the I think you said the vaginal estrogen is something that many of us are not aware of. Well, I wasn't. <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing that. There's so much value in 
all that you have shared with us today. I hopefully would love to have you come back on maybe closer to the conference if it happens in person. I was so disappointed that it didn't happen this past year in Dallas because there are so many of you that I admire so much and would love to someday meet in person. And as we're wrapping things up, I was wondering, is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know? Or I know I'm going to provide some of the links in the show notes, but anything else you'd like to share? Sure. So I think just encouraging people to embrace healthy lifestyle behaviors. It's never too late. You're never too late. I'll hear some people say, there's no way I could ever, you know, here's whole food, plant predominant eating, or here's a Mediterranean diet. And I'm all the way over here. There's no way I could do that. But I think being gentle with ourselves, self-compassion and looking at wherever we're at, but trying to make some of those lifestyle behavior changes, then see how you feel. Dr. Beth Frady's, and I can share this, this book with you as well. And Dr. Amy Commander may have mentioned it. This is the book that I co-authored with Dr. Beth Frady's and Dr. Amy Commander who are both out of Harvard and two amazing physicians. Dr. Beth Frades is a physiatrist and faculty at Harvard. And then Dr. Amy Commander is the head of breast cancer survivorship there as well. And so this book is really meant for, it's meant for patients. It's meant for the general public who will really want to make healthy lifestyle behavior changes. And it's called, it's a workbook, but it's actually a 400 page workbook. So it has questions, but also has a lot of great information that help people with those lifestyle changes. And so you don't need this book, but this book is just one of many resources. Um, reach out to your local community centers, reach out to your healthcare providers, to your physicians, to your nurses, reach out to those in your community, to your health department, um, to your senior center. There are all different types of resources and people out there who want to help you be be healthier. There are a lot of us out there providing evidence-based ways to help improve your health. So paving steps, just real briefly, is the acronym that Dr. Beth Frady's came up with that, that she's been doing with these programs for years. And P is physical activity, but A is attitude. So what can we do to support our attitude? Healthy lifestyle behaviors help us to often have a better attitude, but even like a growth mindset and to have that positivity or how can we look at life PAV varieties. So how can we incorporate a variety of different healthy lifestyle behaviors, incorporate variety into our life to help us be healthy? I is investigation. So how can we find out we're also individual, find out what works for you, for me. And as nutrition, G is goal setting because behavior change is hard. So helping people know how to change their behaviors through goal setting. And then steps, the importance of sleep, timeout. So taking time for oneself. E, energy. How do we manage our energy in healthy ways? P is purpose and an important part of overall health and well-being that just is not discussed enough. And then sleep, so stress, sleep, and then social connections. So addressing all of those different things. So, so many areas of our overall health, but there are many different resources that are out there. And I encourage you to pick any of those areas and just try to make those small steps and to move in, in that direction. And thank you for sharing to having this podcast so that you're sharing so much of this information with others. So I think turning people to the podcast and encouraging them to watch other episodes would probably be a great place to start as well. Yes. I'm so excited about that. And now that you touched on paving, paving the way. So the book is Paving the Path to Wellness, but it's Paving Steps. So, and Dr. Beth Brady's created this program, I think like 15 or quite a few years ago, initially for stroke rehabilitation patients, but it's Paving Steps is her mnemonic that she uses with those 12 steps. Where can people find that book? Is it available on Amazon? It sure is. It's available on Amazon or also through the American College of Lifestyle Medicine as well. So I remember Dr. Commander saying that when an individual who's diagnosed and with breast cancer is going through the process and the treatments, the individual has support. It's almost like a team that's put together to help the individual. But once you come out of that and you're done with your treatments, it's sort of like you're left sort of with this lack of support. And so what this book offers is just like you said, implementing the lifestyle modalities, but also kind of offering support. And I think she even said that there's like a group. Is there a Facebook group associated with this? 
right now the programs are predominantly offered through the Harvard healthcare systems or through their hospitals, I believe, but we're looking into hopefully training other healthcare providers so that we can expand the actual paving program to others. So there'll be more to come, but check out Dr. Beth Frady's and Dr. Amy Commander, their Twitter presence, because we're hoping that we can share the Paving Steps program that Dr. Beth Frady's created and Dr. Amy Commander has been doing for breast cancer survivors so beautifully. We're hoping that we can share that with a larger audience because it's just so needed. I appreciate you taking the time to really share all this information. It's been so valuable. And as always, you know, I just thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. It was a pleasure. And I'd be happy to come back and speak closer to the conference or any time. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Tollefson. You're welcome. You've been listening to the Healthy Lifestyle Solutions Podcast with your host, Maya Acosta. If you've enjoyed this podcast, do us a favor and share with one friend who can benefit from this episode. Feel free to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts. That helps us to spread our message. Thanks for listening.